why don't we pray to our great God as we start this time together. So will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have spoken to us, uh, that uh, you have not remained silent. And Lord, we pray now as we come to hear what you have said, we pray that you'll move in us by your Spirit, illuminate our hearts by your Word. Lord, we pray that as we read it, as we think about it, as we share it with each other, that your Word will dwell richly amongst us so that we have lives that magnify you, so that we are wholehearted as we follow Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, Every now and then you encounter words in your life that kind of send uh, a shiver down your spine. They're they're chilling words, not good words. Uh, Many years ago, Adele and I were in Paris, and we were uh, soaking up the food and the landmarks and the culture, and we were loving it. And we just were loving it so much, we wanted to fit in one more museum before we flew away. Uh, We decided we'd visit the Musée d'Orsay before we had to fly out later that afternoon. Uh, And we knew, going in there, that, 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 that things would be tight. We calculated the time, we, we checked the train schedule, uh, we set ourselves a limit and then we took the risk, uh, we headed to the museum. It was touch and go, but by the time we eventually got the metro and then we got the train and then we got to the airport and we're running through the terminal, we get to the check-in desk and there are the words that send a chill down your spine, flight closed. Uh, the way things are arranged uh, at the airport in Paris is you can actually see, at this place, you can actually see the plane sitting there, but the flight was closed. In that moment, all the um, Dutch post-impressionist art in the world didn't matter. The flight was closed. It meant that none of it really felt worth it. That momentary joy of one more museum, that rush of, of, of getting across town to the airport, it was all lost in that cold reality that that hit us with those words, flight closed. We were stuck. We couldn't board our flight. We we couldn't get back home to the other side of the world where we lived. We're going to possibly miss a wedding and and be up for uh, hundreds or potentially thousands of dollars. I still can't look at a Van Gogh the same way without thinking about the stress of that afternoon. Uh, But there are words that are more chilling than flight closed, aren't there? I actually think some of the most chilling words you can hear in the Bible uh, are in the book of Revelation in chapter 3. Uh, These words ought to send a shiver down our spine. Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea, and this is what he has to say. The words should come up on the screen. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. They have to be some of the most alarming words in the Bible. These are people who claim to trust the Lord Jesus, and yet they're lukewarm. They're tepid in their devotion to Him. They're half-hearted followers. And when they front up to Jesus, when they front up to the check-in desk to His kingdom, they hear these words, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. To think that there's a time where the temperature will be taken, where how we've lived, how we've loved, what we've served, Jesus takes the temperature, and if it's lukewarm... If it's half-hearted, he's warning us that we, we, we might find ourselves spat out of his mouth. 
spat out because that is not his purpose for us. That is not God's desire for our lives. He does not desire followers who are lukewarm. So what does God expect from us? Well, uh, Jesus puts it clearly for us in Mark chapter 12. One of the religious leaders comes to Jesus and he asks him the $64,000 question, the crucial question, what does God require of us? We see this in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Uh, One of the teachers of the law and came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, and here's the key question, of all the commandments, which is the most important? He's asking, hey, Jesus, what does God want from us? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's a lot of alls, isn't it? This is a picture of God's desire. This is a picture of God's plan. This is a picture of God's purpose for our lives, both as individuals and corporately together as a church. It is a picture of wholehearted devotion to Him, isn't it? It's a picture of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. That's what we were made for, says Jesus. That is God's will for your life and for our church. Not lukewarm, not half-hearted, not part-time, not just on Sunday, not just when you feel like it, but whole of life, wholeheartedly living for Him and for His kingdom. And over the next five weeks, we're going we're to spend uh, some time pressing into what that wholehearted life looks like. And we're going to look at these five key ideas, uh, and together they make up a, a kind of a wholehearted devotion to God. And they're kind of five key ideas that we talk about a bit here at City on a Hill. Uh, five things that we want to make sure that at all time we're doing these things, that we are wholehearted. Uh, and that, that they all start with the, the letter M. Some of them might feel a little bit more forced than others, but that's okay. Uh, we can deal with that. Um, the first is magnification. That is, uh, that is growing in love and awe of God, that, uh, a growing love and awe of God that overflows into all of our life. The second is mission, taking the good news of Jesus to our friends and family and the world around us. The third is membership, welcoming people into the community of God's family. Fourthly, maturing, maturity, growing, deepening as followers of Jesus. And lastly, ministry, being equipped to serve God and His people. Those five things, magnifying God, mission to others, welcoming in membership, growing in maturity, serving in ministry, these five things, they, they, they give us a great picture. They're not the only picture, but they give us a great picture of what God longs to see in His people and what He longs to see in us as a church. So to begin the five weeks, we're going to start with magnification, which is uh, the one that maybe feels a little bit more abstract. You, you probably can hear like, mission and uh, membership and maturity and ministry, and you kind of vaguely know what they might mean, but magnification is probably a little bit less familiar. Uh, But magnification here is the love and awe of God that overflows into all of life. Being so delighted, being so caught up, being so uh, won over by God and His love for us, 
that our love and awe of him just overflows into all of life. And to look at this part of our wholehearted discipleship, we're going to dig into that psalm that we just read, Psalm 34. Uh, Now, Psalm 34 is a psalm of King David, and it opens with these remarkable words. Did you hear them? It opens with David saying, I will extol. That means I will bless. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify, or as another translation, the ESV puts it, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Now, did you catch it there? King David is declaring that his life is going to be all about glorifying, all about magnifying God, exalting his name. And David isn't saying, this is what I'm going to do. He's actually inviting us all to join with him. Uh, He says, let us exalt his name together. To make, let us all gather together and make our lives all about the same thing. Make them all about magnifying God, declaring God's praises. Now, just to begin with, there's two ways you can magnify something, aren't there? Uh, if something is really, really small uh, and you want to get a good look at it, uh, what do you use? The scientists out there? A microscope, right? Uh, you remember science class, you peer in through the lens and, and something that's really small starts to look big. But there is another way that we can magnify something, isn't there? Imagine there is something that is really big, it is huge, but it is a long way away. And you want to get a better look at it, what do you use? You use a telescope, right? And when David says, magnify the Lord with me, he's not saying, let's take God who's really small and insignificant and, and make him big so we can see him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, let's make a big God look as big as he really is. We're not called here to be microscopes, but to be telescopes. We're not dodgy salesmen who are, who are magnifying our product out of all proportion to reality, making it seem so much better than it really is. No, there is nothing or no one superior to God... David is calling all those who say they love God, all those who want to be followers of Jesus, he's calling us to make God's greatness look as big as it really is. To have his praise always on our lips, to be a telescope to the world for the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. And we can see here in Psalm 34 why God is worth magnifying. Uh, Now remember, these are the words of the great King David. Uh, He is one who could expect to be praised. He is one who could expect to be exalted. He had single-handedly defeated the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath? This is the guy. Uh, He won great victories over God's, uh, the enemies of God's people. He he brought God's people into a plate of great blessing and prosperity. David could be, he could be, glorify me, look what I have done. But despite all that, David's life is about magnifying the Lord. It's about magnifying the Lord because God and God alone is worthy. God and God alone is deserving of our praise. David praises the Lord and he praises the Lord because of two things here. He praises the Lord because of who he is, his character, because God is good. And he praises the Lord because of what he has done. He is the God who saves. He is good and he is saved. So praise the Lord, says David. So firstly, looking at his character, he is good. Uh, Verse 8, have a look in verse 8 of Psalm 34 with me. I love this verse here. Verse 8, taste and see 
The Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And jump down to verse 10. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God is good, David is saying. God is the the definition of good. And all good things, they come from God. They come from the God who is good. As David surveys the world, all the good things in life that David sees, he knows where they come from. He knows they come from God. And David knows that if God was to pack up and leave, if God was to take all his toys and go home and leave us on our own, he knows we would have nothing that is good. David knows this. Uh, A few Psalms earlier in Psalm 16, it's worth having a read later on today of Psalm 16, but David writes this, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, Lord, I have no good thing. Without God, all the good things in life are gone. No family, no friends, no money, no food, no work, no holidays, no beach, no car, no creation, no nothing. All these good things, all these things we enjoy, they all come from God. And they come from God because He is good. And because He is good, He is worthy of our praise. The second reason why David calls us to join him in magnifying God is because because of what God has done. He is the God who saves. And David himself has experienced God's salvation. Verse 4, have a look there in verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You see, David has experienced God's salvation in his own life, but he has seen God save others as well. He's seen God save the weak and the vulnerable. Verse 6. Verse 6, the poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You see, David magnifies the Lord because he is worthy. He is worthy because he is the God who saves. But if David can say that, how much more can we? How much more do we know this to be true? How much more do we look at God's great saving work in Jesus? And do we have greater reason to magnify and praise the Lord. You see, we have before us in Jesus the clearest picture of them all, that God is the God who saves. Uh, You might be familiar with uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and in chapter 2, he writes this. He's reminding the Ephesians that God is the God who saves, and he says this, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions and sins, it is by grace you have been saved. You see, living this side of the cross, knowing that Christ has already died for our sins once and for all, and knowing that Jesus has been resurrected to new life so that we too can live with God forever, living this side of that reality, how much more reason do we have to praise God because of His salvation, to magnify God because He is the one who saves? Paul will write this to the Romans uh, in chapter 12. He says, 
Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what God has done to save you in Jesus, in view of his mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Magnify God because of who he is. God is good. Magnify God because of what he has done. God has saved. Now, someone who's rocking the kind of, magnify the Lord with me, yeah, let's exalt his name together, yeah, woo! Someone who's kind of walking around like that, you're thinking, they're having a great day, aren't you? You're thinking, life must be awesome for them. I don't know, maybe their footy tea is one, maybe there's free donuts in the kitchen at work, maybe their kids have slept through for the first time ever, and, and, and like people who are running around like, like that, you're thinking, like they're just, they're just on a high, everything's going well for them. Of course you're feeling like that at the moment. You know, I'll extol the Lord always. His prayer, will always be, uh, his prayer will always be on my lips. His praise will always be on my lips. That's what I meant to say. Um, surely that's only for people whose life is going swimmingly, whose life is awesome. But that's not the case for David. When David wrote Psalm 34, he's actually having a terrible day. He's actually having maybe one of the worst days of his life. You see here, magnifying God, it's not dependent on our circumstances. We can tell what's going on for David by these uh, few little words that we see before verse 1. If you've got a a paper Bible there, uh, you'll see there before verse 1, you'll see this in some of the Psalms, these little blurbs, uh, and these little blurbs in in the Psalms that are before verse 1, they're actually part of the original biblical text, they're part of the original languages in the ancient manuscripts, Um, unlike the little headings that we see in other parts of the Bible where they're added in by editors later, these bits in the Psalms are part of God's Word. And often what they tell us is a little bit of context, a little bit of what's going on, a little bit of who wrote it, maybe what was going on for them in their life. And here, in this little bit before verse 1, it tells us that David's not kind of just kind of bubbling with praise because he's having a great day. Look there, it says, Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. You can read more about the situation in uh, 1 Samuel 21, uh, but the main thing to realize here is that David is fleeing for his life. A powerful man, the, the man who's on the throne at the time, Saul, has set out to kill David, to take his life. And David has no choice but to run, to flee. David's not exactly having the sort of day where we'd kind of hashtag blessed, is he? But yet, hiding in caves, running for his life, David can still say, I will extol, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And this tells us that magnifying God, having a love and awe of God that overflows into all of life, it's not dependent on our circumstances. It's not just for the kind of hashtag blessed moments of life. It's not just kind of, uh, and it's not pretending, it's not just slapping on a smile and pretending everything's awesome, kind of two thumbs up all the time. No, we can live a life of praise to God in all seasons. When life is going well, 
and even when in life is very difficult. See, in the original language, this, uh, this psalm is actually an acrostic poem. Uh, what that means is that the first letter of each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It, it would be like in, in English, though the first verse starts with an A and the second verse starts with a B and a C and a D and so on, but it's in Hebrew, obviously. Um, uh, but what this does for us is it, it, it tells us that this is all-encompassing. It tells us that whatever letter you use, whatever direction you look, whatever is happening in all times and in all circumstances, from the A to Z of life, God is worthy of our praise. From the A to Z of life, our life is to be spent magnifying Him. And so it's not just in our songs on Sunday. It's not just with our prayers each morning. David says, I'll extol the Lord at all times times. His praise will always, always be on my lips. And this isn't a kind of fake it till you make it type thing. Even in the hard times, we can praise the Lord. Even in the good times, we can live lives that magnify Him. What does that look like? Well, John Piper, a Christian thinker, writer, and pastor, has this, uh, which is really helpful. He says this. Uh, he says, The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. To feel, to think, and to act in a way that will make God look as great as He really is. To think, to feel, and act in a way that will make God look as great as He really is whether in the good times or the hard times. That is what it means to magnify God, to think, to act, to speak, to sing, to serve, to pray, to give, to love, to live in a way that makes God look as great as He really is. Now, that sounds awesome. But it, all sounds, it also sounds really hard, to be honest. How do we keep doing this? How do we get to this place where David is, where he can be hiding in a cave, where he can be fleeing for his life, where he can be having to pretend to be insane in order to live? How do we get to where David is? A place where our whole life, our thoughts, our affections, our words, they all magnify the Lord. Well, I think the first thing we need to realise is that David is here because he has cultivated this. See, for David, his devotion, it has grown over years and years of trusting and serving and following and relying on God. You see, a life that magnifies the Lord, it's not like a tulip. Uh, Adele, my wife, loves tulips. In tulip season, uh, you're kind of walking around and all of a sudden, uh, you could be walking through like one section of garden one day and there's like nothing. And then the next section is like, boom, all the, all the tulips burst forth. Uh, and it's amazing. But then in a few weeks, they're all gone. They're nothing more than a beautiful memory. Uh, magnifying God with your whole life, it is not like tulips. It requires, uh, it is more like a tree a tree that has been carefully nurtured, a tree that has been carefully cultivated over time, a tree that has sunk deep, deep roots. 
so that when trouble comes, it can endure. So when winds and storms come, like we've seen recently, it will stand. A life that magnifies the Lord in all circumstances has deep, deep roots. And deep, deep roots into who God is and what He has done and deep, deep roots into, roots into God's Word. We get a great picture of how to, how to cultivate the life that magnifies God in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae and he says this in chapter 3. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, one of the ways that we cultivate a life that will magnify God, one of the ways that we let uh, God's Word uh, put deep, deep roots into our lives is to let the message of Christ dwell among us. That's letting God's Word go deep into our hearts and into our minds, saturating our lives with the news of God's goodness, of God's salvation. And we see there that one of the ways that we let the message of Christ uh, dwell deeply among us is, is to be teaching one another. Another way is to be singing to one another. Another way it goes deep is to be singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Now, teaching one another, singing to one another, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts, what does that sound like to you? Sounds a lot like what we do each Sunday, doesn't it? It's a bit of a picture of church, isn't it? Gathering together to hear God speak through His Word, responding to Him in prayer and praise and thanksgiving, praising Him in song, reminding one another each and every week of God's goodness, of His salvation, of what He has done for us in Jesus. And so here at Cedar Hill, as we want to have lives that magnify God, lives that, that grow in their love and awe of God that overflows into all of life, a key way that we do that is to keep gathering together, to keep reminding each other from God's Word, of God's goodness and God's salvation, and letting that go deep amongst us. I want you to have a think. Um, how many sermons do you hear every week? How many sermons do you hear every week? Got a number in your head? Well, I want to say it's, it's a lot more than you think. It's a lot more than you think. See, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, we are being preached at all the time. We're being preached at by the world around us. We see and hear and read hundreds of sermons every week. Every ad, every show, every magazine, every song, it is all preaching to you. It is all preaching to you. They all come with a message. They all come with a message about what is right and wrong. They all come with a message about what will make you happy. They all come with a message about what you ought to fear and what you ought to love. They come with a message of how you ought to think and how you ought to feel. We are being preached at all the time. We are being bombarded all the time, almost every waking hour, we're being presented 
with a view of the world that doesn't acknowledge that God is good and that doesn't look to Him as the one who saves. And yet we gather for an hour and a bit on Sunday morning and maybe an hour and a bit uh, during the week at your community group. Uh, be great if there was some personal Bible reading here and there as well. And so for those measly three or so hours, we let the message of Christ dwell richly among us. And those measly three hours are competing with the 80 plus hours a week where the world is preaching to us a different message. A message that doesn't remind us that God is good. A message that doesn't remind us that God is the one who saves. So can I ask you to make sure that these precious moments count? That these precious moments count. As we gather, let's cultivate heads and hearts and lives that will magnify the Lord in all of life. Let's cultivate them by letting the message of Christ dwell richly amongst us. Cultivate lives where we are growing in our love and awe of God so that it overflows into all of life. Let's cultivate lives that magnify God so that we might be wholehearted followers of Jesus. So that on that last day, when Jesus takes the temperature, we don't hear those chilling words, but we hear these comforting words. That we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share. Come and share in your master's happiness. Will you pray with me that we might be a people and a church that magnify God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us, that you are a God who is good, that without you we have no good thing. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who saves, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we pray that our lives might magnify your glory, that we might live live to praise you, that we might have lives that proclaim to the world around us your goodness and your salvation. And Lord, we really pray that as we gather each week, as we, as we read your word, as we sing praises to you, as we remind each other of what you have done for us in Jesus, we pray that the word of Christ, that your word will dwell richly amongst us, cultivating in us hearts that magnify you.